Man, you may be seated. Uh, we have recently been in a study of the book of Galatians, and we're going to continue that uh, this morning. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And we are going to slow down very significantly over the next three weeks, looking at really just a single verse over the next three weeks. Galatians chapter 5. Well, it's two verses, really. Galatians chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23. Galatians 5, verses 22, and really the first part of verse 23. And you may ask, well, why are we slowing down so much for this verse and a half? And the answer is that with these verses, we come to that well-known portion of Scripture that lists for us the fruit of the Spirit. Nine different qualities that are listed as the fruit of the Spirit. And rather than going over those nine in a kind of cursory fashion, I thought it would be wise uh, to spend about three sermons looking at them together. So we'll do them in groups of three. This week, love, joy, peace. Next week, patience, kindness, uh, uh, patience, kindness, goodness. Next, the last week, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, let's read now God's holy word. We're going to read just the first part, Galatians chapter 5. And verse 22, let's hear God's word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Let's look to God in prayer together. Lord, our uh, God in heaven, we uh, thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. O Lord, where would we be? without the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. We thank you for the assurance, O Lord, that when the Spirit dwells in us, that he produces fruit. O Lord, our God, as we slow down these next three weeks in our study of Galatians chapter 5 and consider these nine fruit in some detail, O Lord, it is our humble desire that we wouldn't merely receive information for our minds, but Lord, that we would know the transforming power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Might these fruit be born, Lord, in greater abundance in us as a result of this study together. That, O Lord, is our earnest plea. Do this, we pray. And we pray this for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. You know that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes into your life, he changes you. And he changes you from the inside out. You become a new person. The old is gone, we're told in the book of Corinthians, and the new is come. And that change that results in us isn't the result, it, it doesn't come about because of our uh, human effort, simply, it's not that we, as it were, turn over a new leaf, pick ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps or something like that, but rather 
It is the result of the Holy Spirit of God coming and dwelling in us. What does the Spirit do in us when he comes and dwells in us? Well, he produces fruit. And that's what we have in this passage, the fruit of the Spirit. Nine different qualities that are to be found in the lives of those who are changed by uh, the Holy Spirit of God. And I think it's very interesting that the Bible uses this language of the fruit of the Spirit. By calling what the Spirit produces in us fruit, it, it shows us that what the Spirit produces in us is nothing less than the divine character. What Second Peter Second uh, Peter 1 even calls that we have become partakers of the divine nature. What that language means is not that we become God, but rather that the life of God, as it were, takes up residence in our souls. We become like him in many ways. And so the Holy Spirit of God, when he comes into our lives, produces fruit. And it's not something we can produce on our own. Our own sinful flesh cannot bring forth good fruit, but rather the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives that is to the glory and honor of his name. And that's why the Christian message can never be reduced simply to a message of morality. Our message isn't simply, well, be good, practice kindness, stop being angry, be a little bit more patient. Rather, the Christian message is this, that first of all, what you need is Jesus Christ. And Christ not only has paid for our sins, his righteousness imputed to us, but then, again, by the Holy Spirit, he produces in us what we cannot produce in ourselves. He changes us. And when we have Jesus Christ in our lives, we then can bring forth fruit unto God. And all who are children of God then bring forth this fruit. Jesus himself says, it's by your, their fruits that you shall know them. It's the evidence that we truly belong to Jesus Christ. But as well, it's interesting that this language of fruit is really language that is used in the singular. Okay, it's, uh, it's, it's used here in the singular, that there is kind of a singular fruit that is produced in us with, as it were, a kind of nine different aspects. And that teaches us that the Spirit of God doesn't produce in us, well, some fruit, but not others. It's not that he makes us loving, but not at peace, or patient, but not self-controlled. But rather, these nine fruit are all, as it were, different aspects of that singular work which the Spirit produces in our lives. It's kind of like if you took an actual orange, a piece of fruit, right? You unpeel that orange, you go to eat it, and what does that orange have? It has different sections to it. One piece of fruit with different sections, and that's kind of what we have here. A singular fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives with different aspects of what it looks like, different dimensions to the Christ-like character that is produced in us. And so in that way, the gifts of the Spirit are different than the fruit of the Spirit. Not everybody has all of the gifts, right? The Spirit produces some gifts in some people and others in others, but the fruit of the Spirit ought to be evident in some measure 
in all those who are children of God. So we're going to go through this fruit together. But before we do, I just want to simply ask you at the outset here, do you desire to have a fruit-bearing life? A life which testifies that you are controlled by the Spirit of the living God. A life that looks like the character of your blessed Savior. And my desire is that as we go through these fruit, one by one by one, that your prayer might continually be, Oh Lord, do this in me. Might I, by the power of your Spirit, exhibit this fruit more and more? Might I glorify you through this fruit being produced in my life? Might that be your prayer as we go through these together? So let's look at the first three of the fruit uh, this morning. What does the Holy Spirit produce in us? And the first of those three is the fruit of love. The fruit of of love. The fruit of the Spirit is, first and foremost, before anything else, what does the Spirit produce in us? He produces love. Well, love has its source, like all of the other fruit, but love has its source, first of all, in God. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Love is an essential part of God's nature. Now, God isn't only love. He's also holy. He's also good. But God is love. And all love is, first of all, found in God. You know that God was loving even before he created this world. Well, how is that? Well, the Father loved the Son perfectly. The Son loved the Spirit. The Spirit loved the Son and the Father, there was within the triune Godhead himself a life of perfect love. But then when in God's wisdom he willingly chose to create this world, as it were, that love of God was shed abroad to the world and we see it expressed toward his creation in thousands of different ways, don't we? We experience the love of God in the beauty of a sunset. And in the taste of a delicious meal. In the satisfaction of a job that is well done. In the delight of a new grandchild. All of these things come, each one of them, from the hand of a loving God. It is a God of love. Expressing that love toward his creation. But dear friends, nowhere is the love of God more evident than in the giving of his own son for our salvation. Right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son. Where is the love of God chiefly to be seen? It's in the giving of Jesus Christ, taking upon himself the true humanity, and dying, suffering the wrath of God in our place so that you and I might be freed forever from our sin and brought into loving communion with him. The pulpit, or the, the cross is, as it were, the pulpit of God's love. And so love is, first of all, that which we see in God himself. Well, what is this love 
An old 19th century writer, George Bethune, defined it in this way. He said this, that love is an affection which has delight in its objects and desires their welfare. I think that's a beautiful definition. Love is an affection which has delight in its objects. It takes delight in that which it loves. But not only takes delight in that which it loves, but then also desires the welfare of the object of its love. And so that has that not been God's uh, love towards us? And is that not the kind of love that we then are to show in response? All love that is produced in us is ultimately a response to God's love. And we are to love both God and then to love others as well. And it's not an either or between those things. Right? Well, we don't love others but not God, and we don't love God but not others. It's both. In fact, that's the summary of the law, isn't it? Isn't that what Jesus said? When we summarize what the Ten Commandments are all about, he says, it is found in these two things, that you shall love the Lord your God, first of all, with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and secondly, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. And so we are to love both God and neighbor. And we do each of these things because of the love of God which has first been shown toward us. Romans 5.5, 5, he has shed his love abroad in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Colossians 3.14, this love is the bond of perfection. It's the chief of all virtues. And this love is ultimately modeled on the love which Christ himself has shown to us. John 13, 33 and 34. Little children, Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so we are to show love in response to God's love for us and after the model of Jesus Christ. And this does teach us something very important, that when we find our own love growing cold, or when it seems impossible to love that other person, you need to focus, first of all, on God's love toward you. Oh, how God has loved you. How then should we love in return? Jerry Bridges tells the story of a particular individual that he found very, very difficult to love. Okay, we, we know people like that, right? Okay, I'm not going to ask you for names, okay? I'm afraid I might hear mine sometimes, okay? So, all right, people that are difficult to love. Well, even the writer Jerry Bridges, somebody that was difficult to love. And one time he says, one evening as he was thinking about this, suddenly this truth came upon his soul. He, heard, he, as it were, thought of the Lord saying to him, Jerry, do you believe that I love that individual just as he is? And Jerry had to say, yes, I believe. This is a Christian. Lord, you love that individual. And then this follow-up question came into his own mind. It's as if the Lord was saying to him, Jerry, if I can love him, 
can't you also? And that's the kind of love that we need to have. It's a love that is, because, that is rooted in God's love for us. Well, what does God's love for us look like that we then are to express towards God and towards others? A lot of different qualities. A lot of different qualities. How has Christ loved us? Well, he has loved us, first of all, when we weren't very lovable. God shows his own love for us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, yet sinners, not very lovable at all, Christ died for us. And so you and I are called to love not only those who are lovable that we find naturally delightful, but we are to love, yes, even our siblings when they are annoying, Yes, your spouse, when you are deeply hurt by him or by her. That fellow church member that in your flesh you want to avoid. The ungodly co-worker, even that you find foul and disgusting. Yes, even them. You are called to love. Because Christ loved us when we were unlovable. But not only are we to love those who are unlovable, well, Christ also loved us entirely. Entirely. That is, he didn't withhold his love from us. He didn't only give half of his love toward us. But rather, there was a sincerity to us. And so we are to love others entirely and sincerely as well. Well, his love towards us was also a faithful love. He loved us faithfully. That is, he didn't give it up. John 13, 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And aren't you so glad that our Lord's love is a faithful love? That despite all the ways that you've sinned against him and disappointed yourself and disappointed him, that he still loves you. It is a love which will carry you all the way to the end, a love which will not let you go. And so we are called to love others faithfully to the end. Well, it's not only a love towards those who weren't lovable, a love that is entire, a love that is faithful. It's also a love that is exuberant. That is, the Lord tells us that he loves us. He wants us to know it. In fact, he tells us all over the pages of Scripture. There's even a whole psalm, Psalm 136, whose constant refrain is this, that his steadfast love endures forever. And so he tells us time and again, and so we also ought to be willing to tell others of our love for them. Paul's a beautiful example of this, by the way. You know, perhaps there was no congregation as messed up as that of the Corinthian congregation. And yet Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.14, he says this, I wrote you to let you know the depth of my love for you. We ought to love others exuberantly. We also ought to love them with self-denial. With self-denial, because that is how Christ loved us, right? He gave his own life for us, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So you and I are called often to deny ourselves in a lot of ways in order to deny ourselves of 
how we would want to spend our time and our resources to deny ourselves our own comforts for the good of other people. We are to love with self-denial. But we are to live love as well purposefully. And that's how the Lord has loved us. He has loved us so as to make us more holy. And so we are to love others with that purpose in view. You know, the Lord sometimes rebukes and chastises us out of his love for us. And so to love somebody else doesn't mean, well, that you simply tolerate everything that goes on in their lives. To love someone isn't always to affirm all the choices that they make. The Lord doesn't love us in that way. But we are to love them sometimes in difficult ways to the end that they might be more holy. So we are to love purposefully. But then also we are to love in action. Here I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 13 that tells us what love looks like. And love manifests itself by patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is uh, not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is not like those things, but rather love shows itself through actions. And can I simply ask you, do you show your love by considering others' needs before your own? Love can show itself in a listening ear or an encouraging text or a willingness to forgive or in lending a helping hand or simply having a smile on your face. All of these ways are ways of showing love, a delight in the object of your love a desire for their welfare. What an important fruit this is. And I simply ask you, is this your goal? One of your goals to manifest this fruit. Do you remember what we're told at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, that great love chapter? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Are you seeking to grow in this fruit of love? Are you praying? Is it regularly one of your prayers? Oh, Holy Spirit of God, Give me an increasing love, an increasing love toward you, an increasing love towards others. And can you think about perhaps some of those people, especially, that you find difficult to love? And Can you say that by God's grace, I am going to love that person and love that person well? Not because they are lovable in themselves, but because of what, how God has loved me, first of all. Let us be a people that are marked by love. Second fruit. Let's move on. Second fruit is that of joy. The fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love, but second, 
joy. How interesting. Second in this list, only to love, is that fruit of joy. Well, this isn't the only place in the Bible that joy is mentioned. In fact, it's all over the pages of Scripture. Jesus himself said to his disciples, uh, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Isn't that beautiful? That our Lord Jesus wants us to have a full joy. Or 1 John 1.4, John says, These things we write to you, that your joy might be full. Romans 14.18, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or Philippians 4.4, this command from the Apostle Paul, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, in case you didn't get it, I say, rejoice. God's people are to be a people of joy. But there's a little, there's importance to that little phrase that Paul used there in Philippians 4.4. The joy that you and I experience is a joy that is in the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And so the Bible doesn't tell us simply, well, be joyful, and that's it. It doesn't give us a reason. And sometimes you might, I don't know if I've seen a bumper sticker like that, but you feel like you hear that kind of thing. People say, well, we need to be joyful. We need, and you want to say, why? What if my life is miserable? What if I just lost my job? What if my wife just ran away with somebody? What if my dog just died? What if I'm sick all the time? What if I live in the Ukraine and my city was just bombed out? Am I supposed to be joyful then? It's rather empty to tell me, well, just be joyful. Friends, there's only one real reason for joy. And the one real reason for joy is this. It is because that what I have in the Lord far outweighs and even transforms the difficulties that I face. It is joy that is in the Lord. Now, the Bible, you understand, is very realistic about hardship in our lives. Is the Bible in touch with our lives? Yeah, it is. Just read through the Psalms, the Psalms of Lament. Right? I mean, David spoke about one of those in Psalm 123 earlier. People that were full of contempt for him. Life is hard. And the Bible acknowledges that. This is a world of sorrows and of hardship and of, and of difficulty. And sometimes it presses against us and it seems that it's far more that we can bear. But the Bible then also tells us right alongside of that, dear friends, that when we belong to the Lord, there are innumerable spiritual blessings of salvation and fellowship with God that far outweigh my trials. And in fact, these blessings of salvation and fellowship with God not only outweigh my trials, but they transform my trials because what it means is that each one of those trials has been sent to me from a sovereign God who loves me and is using that in my life 
to transform me into the image of Jesus Christ. And as well, the Bible tells me that there is coming a day when all of that pain and anguish and death and sorrow and hardship that I experience now is going to be no more if I belong to him. That's what my Bible tells me. And so, yes, life is really hard. And sometimes even brings tears that run down our cheeks. Just like our Savior who wept at the grave of Lazarus. But dear friends, even amidst all of those hard things, there is real, substantial reason for joy. That's why one of the fruit that the Spirit produces in the life of every single child of God is that fruit of joy. Jerry Bridges, again, if I can quote him, defines joy in this way. He says that Christian joy is essentially the enjoyment of God. Christian joy is essentially the enjoyment of God. Of God. And that's where real joy is to be found. And if real joy is to be found in the Lord, can I also say the opposite? That there is no real joy apart from the Lord. Okay? There's a certain exhilaration we sometimes might experience when we sink an 80 foot putt. At least I do, okay? Well, not that I've sunk too many of those. Or there is a kind of temporary delight that we have from being in love or a kind of temporary satisfaction from acing that test or being promoted at work. There can be unhappiness even in these things, but dear friends, if you rip these things away from the Lord who is the giver of every good gift, I tell you, those joys are fleeting. They are absolutely fleeting. They're here one day and gone the next. There is no lasting real joy in those things because every earthly thing will ultimately fail us. Life will turn sour. People will disappoint you. You will disappoint yourself. And apart from the Lord, underneath it all, you are still in your sins And you don't know the highest joy for which we were made, which is life in him. And so can I encourage you to know that spiritual and heavenly joy, the real joy that comes only in the Lord. It's joy that is in him. Now, how could this joy, how should this joy exhibit itself in our lives? I can think of a number of different ways, and you could probably add several things to this list. I think one of the ways in which joy exhibits itself is that we are to find great delight in the things that God is doing in this world. And do you know that he is doing so much in this world? Be encouraged. Do you, for instance, know a young person who loves the Lord and it's obvious? Rejoice! Is there a gospel-preaching church? Rejoice! Does God bring one of the promises of his word applied to your soul with a certain freshness? Rejoice! 
in these and a thousand other ways all around you. God is at work, and we need to have our eyes open to those things and be rejoicing continually in the work that He's doing. So we need to find great delight in the things that God is doing in this world. Similarly, we should exhibit joy in our demeanor as we interact with other people. This doesn't mean that we should be, as it were, pasting fake smiles on our mouths or that we can't ever express emotions of sadness or of grief. But my question is this. People that know you, would they say about your life that fundamentally that you are a joyful person? In the Lord, that you are a joyful person. That ought to be a a fundamental characteristic of, of who we are. Joy in the Lord. But how else should this joy manifest itself? It ought to manifest itself in our worship, right? A time when we gather as God's people, especially to hear of the great things that he's done and to offer our prayers and our praises to him. That's why when we sing, oh, don't mumble the words as we sing. Or worse yet, don't stand there with a lips that are shut. Here's an opportunity to make known joy in the Lord. And when we listen to the Bible and hear preaching, we don't slouch, we don't nod off. Seek to to captivate your mind and your heart and find joy in the things that are being told you from God's word. Let's worship him with joy. But also joy expresses itself in contentment with our present conditions. Let's be a people that are marked by contentment. That's one of the signs of true joy. We take what the Lord has given us as from his loving hand. He has given us so many mercies in Jesus Christ. Apparently, he in his great wisdom and in his love sees fit that we are in our present situation our present circumstance, whatever our bank account numbers say, whoever it is that's in our family, wherever it is that we live, or whatever other things that you are tempted to be discontent about, it's your loving, gracious Father who has placed us here. Let's be content, joyfully content, where God has placed us. Nehemiah says, that the joy, or in Nehemiah, we are told, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let us know joy in the Lord. And do not be robbed of this joy. Seek not to be robbed of this joy. How can you be robbed of joy? Well, we are robbed of joy when we don't confess our sin, whereby we grieve the Holy Spirit. When I kept silent, Psalm Uh, 32 says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. But the psalmist then says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Don't be robbed of your joy by unconfessed sin and don't be robbed of your joy, dear friends, by focusing on your circumstances rather than on Jesus Christ. You know, if you take a quarter, a quarter's only that big, and if you put it all the way up to your eye, and then you look at the sun, no matter how large that sun is, no matter the kind of grandeur 
and glory and brightness with which it shines, you will not see it. Dear friends, sometimes the circumstances of our lives are so small, but we put them up to our spiritual vision that that's all that we see. And we miss out on the grandeur and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And can I encourage you, dear friends, don't be looking all the time at your circumstances, but look at him. We find joy in the Lord. The second fruit is that of joy. Thirdly, let's move on quickly. The the fruit of peace. Love, joy, peace is the third fruit that we find in the Holy Spirit. So if joy is that exhilaration of delight that we find in the enjoyment of Christ, then peace is that tranquility of mind knowing that all is well in him. It's a kind of tranquility of mind knowing that in Christ all is well. Now, biblical peace is not simply the absence of strife. The Hebrew word, many of you know it, is the word shalom. And it's a word that indicates the rich blessing of God, and it's a blessing that is ours only through Jesus Christ. You see, it's only in Christ that we are, first of all, at peace with God, that by nature we are actually rebels against God. We are at enmity with him. We have stuck our fist in the face of God, and we have said, I'm going to do things my own way. I don't want you as part of my life. It's a state of enmity. But the good news of the gospel is that by God's initiative, by his sovereign grace, he has made his enemies his friends. And he's done it through the giving of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1. And so, as those who are redeemed by Christ, we are no longer at enmity with God, but we are actually God's beloved child, and we experience now his love and his blessing and no longer his wrath. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, because of Christ's work bringing us into a state of peace with God, he now gives us that Holy Spirit that sheds abroad in our hearts and in our lives that sense of peace in the Lord. And what does that peace do to us? That peace of God. Well, let me mention three things. A lot of subpoints in today's sermon. Let me mention three things about this peace that God brings into our lives. And the first thing about it is this, that he brings peace amidst our fight against sin. You know, just a couple weeks ago, remember we talked about the battle that is called sanctification and it's warfare, the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against uh, the flesh. We aren't what God has called us to be and we need to constantly be pursuing holiness. But do you know, amidst that pursuit of holiness that we have deep down, fundamentally, a real sense of peace. That though I'm not yet what God has called me to be, I'm going to continue to fight to be what God has called me to be, but do you know, 
that these sins that I continue to commit aren't being counted against me? Do you know that the Lord still loves me? That he assures me that he's my father? That he tells me I'm going to be with him in glory and that these sins are going to be no more? What a glorious promise this is. And friends, what peace that brings our souls because what Satan will sometimes do is he'll use our sins against us and he'll tell us, you know, you're such a bad sinner. God doesn't want anything to do with you. And we can say, no, he sent his son to die for me. I'm forgiven in him. And he gives us peace. And that peace is what enables us then to go and to fight the fight of faith. God is not against me. He's for me, even in the battle of sanctification. And so it gives us a peace amidst our fight against sin. Secondly, what about this peace? Is that God then brings peace in our relationships with others. That is, if I am at peace with God, I then am to seek to live at peace with other people. If possible, the Bible tells us, so far as it depends on you, Romans 12, live peaceably with all. Be a peacemaker. Now this doesn't mean peace at all costs or that I spinelessly compromise with a world that is hostile to God on the great moral and spiritual issues of our day. No, not at all. As far as it depends on you, we are told, live peaceably with all men. That is, do not needlessly offend. Do not hold a grudge. Do not stir up strife. And especially with your fellow Christian, oh, how you ought to seek peace with them. Do not allow hard feelings to linger. Do not stir up feelings of rivalry or envy or bitterness. Don't avoid the other person, but rather make peace with them. Do you know one of the greatest testimonies that the Christian church can bring that our God is a God of peace is to show them the difference that the gospel makes in our relationships with one another, in our marriages, in our families in our relationships that we have within the church, the world around us should, as it were, say, we live in a world of such selfishness and such strife, but all these Christians, they found something that we don't have. They serve a God of peace. Simply, are we seeking to cultivate peace in the relationships with others that we have? Thirdly, the third thing about peace is that he brings peace, the Lord brings peace in the face of a tragic past and of an uncertain future. You know, this is perhaps more than any other where we experience the peace of God. You know, sometimes tragedy strikes. It may for you this week, we don't know. Or it may for you this past month or this past year, the death of a child or of a spouse, the loss of a job, and your world seems to swirl around you. 
Or there's an uncertain future, right? You don't know what's going to come. What college are you going to attend? Is anybody going to marry you? Will your finances last into retirement? There's so many things that you don't know. And what are we to do in a world where tragedy strikes us and there is, from our perspective, an uncertain future? The Bible says deep down in the midst of all of that, you can experience a peace, a peace that passes understanding. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace, Lord, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Or as we sing, stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised perfect peace and rest. So there is a peace that flows out of the peace that God has made with us through Jesus Christ. A peace amidst our fight with sin, a peace in our relationships with others, a peace amidst tragedy and an uncertain future. Do you know something of that peace that is filling your hearts? Love, joy, peace. And let me just say by way of conclusion, you know, we live in a world, we live in a world that frequently overpromises and underdelivers. Watch any commercial on the TV. I don't understand how having a brand of, you know, paper towels is going to give me a smiling, happy family, <laughs> right? Overpromise, underdeliver. Politicians do it, right? We're in an election year. You know, you vote for this particular person, uh, you know, the whole world is going to be transformed. <laughs> it's not, okay? Overpromise, underdeliver. And the question is, does the Bible do the same? Does the Bible overpromise? Come to Christ, have the Spirit dwell in you. You will know love, joy, peace. We become callous to these things living in the world in which we live, right? We, we partly say, yeah, right. Well, dear friends, this comes from a God who does not lie. And a God who has produced this fruit in the lives of countless others. Because it's fruit that is first of all seen in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, you are united to him. And I tell you, I tell you on the authority of God's word that the Holy Spirit produces in God's people fruit that this world knows nothing of. Love, joy, peace. It can be yours in abundance. That's what our God does. Will we not cry out to him Depend upon him. Lord, exhibit this fruit in my life, I pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these first three fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace. We do pray now, O Lord, our God, that even as we have considered these three together and what blessed fruit they are, that you would produce them in our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.